Welcome to the Banking on Business podcast presented by Horicon Bank. Banking on Business is aimed at helping entrepreneurs grow their business with practical strategies you can start using today. We are all about engaging our local business community and connecting with other small businesses to raise each other up. Hosted by yours truly, Grace Bruins, marketing officer at Horicon Bank, turned podcaster, at least for the next 20 minutes. All right. Welcome to the Banking on Business podcast presented by Horicon Bank. Today, we are talking with Christine Gunderson, one of Insight Publications 40 Under 40. So congratulations, Christine. That is very cool. And you were one of the first, right? This was the first time that award was given out. So that's a big deal. In our region, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you also work in talent retention, which is something we are going to touch on today. This is a super competitive hiring environment. So talking about some of those strategies or things you have to consider if you want to keep your employees employed with your organization, because it would be very easy for them to walk away right now. So I'm excited. Yeah, me too. All right, Christine, let's let our listeners get to know you a little bit better with a rapid fire intro to the expert. This is our rapid fire intro to the expert. I fire off the questions and you answer as quickly as you can. Are you ready to play? Yes. Okay. First of all, where are you from? I am originally from Green Bay, Wisconsin. And what is your favorite thing about what you do every day? People. Everything I do all day long is about people and about the community I live in. Awesome. And I can tell from from speaking to you, you're very passionate about people and helping people and, and doing those things. What would you say you're most passionate about? Oh, my gosh. That's tricky. Young people, oh. um, our teenagers and, and the young people in our community. All right. Our future workforce. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so what is your biggest pet peeve? My biggest pet peeve? Now, are we talking professionally or personally? Oh, personally, for sure. Personally, I hate when I can hear chewing. Same. I feel you there. I can't. (laughs) Just like physically leave the room. Like I can't do this. Oh my God. It's nails on a chalkboard. (laughs) And what's your favorite zoo animal? Um, An elephant. Ah. And you said you have a one-year-old. Does your one-year-old have a favorite zoo animal yet? Not yet. Um, But right now we love lions because we know how to make their sound. So Uh, we do a lot of roaring in our household. mm, That's good. Yes. (laughs) All right. Before we get into our topic today, Christine, let's talk about a product. This is our marketing minute here. And I want to talk about a product that I'm guessing neither one of us actually use, which is Old Spice Body Wash. (laughs) Do Do you use Old Spice? I don't. So I'm just guessing. I don't. Okay. Okay. Now, do you remember the smell like a man campaign? They did this about 10 years ago. Okay. So there was like this hunky pro athlete and he's talking to the swapping man. Yes. And he's talking to the audience, but he's not actually talking to men. He's talking to the female audience, which is a little unusual. And he's telling them, ladies, look at your man. Now look at me. Now look back at your man, right? Like he had this interaction with the audience that way. Yep. <laughs> and And he was talking to women and the whole point was to tell women, you could have a man that smells like me, right? That was the point of the commercial, right? Which feels a very roundabout way to sell men's body wash. But Old Spice actually dug into their data and they found that 60% of body wash is actually bought by women. 60% of men's body wash is bought by women, which you and I are both like, absolutely, we're married. We understand how that works. (laughs) (laughs) So, 
they actually marketed to the buyer and not necessarily the user, which is a little bit different strategy. So for our listeners, our entrepreneurs that are out there, consider digging into your own data. Don't be afraid to challenge your assumptions around who you think your customers are or what they're looking for. And and really look at those things you can quantify and see what story it tells. Mm-hmm. So I remember those commercials too. I can't believe they're 10 years ago, which feels like dates me quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, Christina, I'm excited to talk to you today about your own story as an entrepreneur, as someone that, you know, left after high school and you're like, see ya, never coming back. And now you're back and you're not just back. You are helping employers keep people here. Right. You're actively working at not allowing other people to leave as best we can. So um, I'm excited to talk to you about that. Why don't you. Tell me a little bit about your journey, you know, after high school and and kind of how you found those things that you were truly passionate about. Yeah, absolutely. So I was that like 17 year old who deeply loved animals. Okay. And I had this grand idea that I was going to train service animals and, but you know, like also the parents in my ear saying like, okay, but go get a degree. Sure. My mom didn't have a college degree at the time. And so she was a huge advocate. Like, I don't really care what degree you go get, just go get something. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, in today's age, that sounds a little different. Like her message is the same ish. It's the like, you don't have to necessarily go get the four year, but go do something. Yes. Mm-hmm. Continue to grow. So, but at the time that was the, like, go get the four year. And so I went to school for animal science. I have a degree in animal science with meat and meat products emphasis, and then a minor in business management. Okay. So I always love to tell people I have the best degree you could have to be a butcher. (laughs) Which is not what you are. (laughs) I know. Never once, never wanted to. I specifically worked it out and skated around the system. The one class they wanted to require me to take was meat and meat products class, but you have to watch an animal be slaughtered. And I was Mm. like, no, thank you. Mm -mm. I really like animals and I like eating them, but I like, I don't want to see the process. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's enough to learn it. I don't need more. And so like, I don't remember how I got myself out of it, but I did. And, um, and the meat me products emphasis was a, was a technicality. They didn't have an animal or a companion animal emphasis at the time. They do now. So I wanted to train service animals. Went and did that, or like went and got the degree. I was in between my junior and my senior year, and I was fairly broke. Um, and so, you know, while school was out, I started working full time at my part time job, which was for the YMCA of the of Hudson, Wisconsin. Um, and I started working with kids in a summer camp. But I was doing my internship too. So I was working as a mammal nursery intern for the Wildlife Rehabilitation Center of Roseville. And that's in Minneapolis. So like I'm doing this unpaid internship and then I'm working this summer job with a bunch of teenagers, 35 hours a week at the internship, 30 hours a week or 35, depending on the week with kids Mm -hmm. exhausted. I almost fell asleep behind the wheel of my car a couple of times because I was sometimes getting up at 5am, but not getting home till 1am. Like, wow, it was not safe and not something I would recommend. But what it did for me was it very much illuminated when there is nothing left to give of yourself, right? Mm -hmm. Like sleeping four hours a night and hallucinating in my dreams about raccoons. I have nothing left to give. Yeah. What do I still want to go do? Mm-hmm. And I still wanted to go work with the young people. And so 
at that point, I was like, well, I either finish the degree or I extend my education and take a longer time getting the full-time work. I'll just finish the degree. I started relating things that I was doing to like animals and young people. Okay. And I shifted my focus. So by the time I hit my senior year, I started working closer to full-time. I was up in Hudson more frequently. By the time I graduated, I was nearly full-time. A year out of college, I took over a big chunk of my department. By the time I was 23, I ran the department. Wow. And so I did youth outreach for from 19 to 26 age frame. And what that meant is that I oversaw um, youth outreach programs for teenagers, specifically in Western Wisconsin. I ran a skate park. I ran two teen centers, teen nights, a youth and government program and achievers program, like serving thousands of kids. It was, I, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Young people are the coolest, like I call them young people, teenagers, ten, <laughs> ages 10 to 18 are the coolest people you're ever going to meet. And I stand on that. They're my favorite. So I, I did that. I, I had a, a workplace tragedy that took me out of the game. I didn't really overcome it. I was very young and the, the impact was greater than I had the skill set to deal with. And so I made the choice to step away from that career path. And But I still loved working with kids. And so I kind of transitioned into working more of a desk desk job. I worked for the Boy Scouts of America and they always referred to me as a unicorn because no kids, female, what are you doing in the Boy Scouts? <laughs> but I loved kids and I loved the program and what it did for the kids. I actually stand by a lot, like no matter what people want to say about the Boy Scouts, they have some phenomenal protection policies for young people in place. Mm-hmm. And so like there were a lot of components of that job that I absolutely loved. While I was there, we brought girls into the traditional scouting program. So my like little feather in my cap that I, it means literally nothing to anyone other than me, but the very first female Eagle Scout in the United States, I was the professional who signed her application oh, to like cool. officially let her in. <laughs> and I was like, I am not the person who earned it. It is her claim, <laughs> her fame, but like I at least opened the door. And that felt so good. That was my victory of that career. But like in that, I, you know, I really started getting to know the community, building the community. Um, I moved to UW-Stevens Point at Wassa campus and did continuing education after that, working with community, working with volunteers and a lot of professional development. During that time, I got married, COVID, all of the fun things, COVID wedding over here. So someday I've got a million stories for whoever is interested. (laughs) My husband then got offered. I met him when I was in the Twin Cities. We worked in youth outreach together. And he got an opportunity to move to Green Bay and develop a youth outreach program for our community here. And so I know I was like, yeah, you go do it. Like, I'm out of the game. Get back in. Go do it. Right. And so he got the opportunity to do that, which then meant like, okay, now I got to figure out what I'm going to do found an opportunity working with the Current Young Professionals program here in Green Bay. And then my career kind of just bloomed from there. And I found out that, you know, really what, and I I knew this along the way, but what I've pieced together as I kind of started with this desire to train service animals, and then it evolved, right, on this really ridiculous path that still kind of makes sense. What it always came back to is I want to take care of people. 
right? I want to invest in people. I want to see the world be a better place. I always say, I shouldn't say I always say, in the last year-ish, I've really identified that like my mantra in the world (laughs) is every day, it's really hard to be a human being on a good day, right? On the most average basic day, it is still hard to be a human being. So I want to do anything I can to not make it harder to be a human being, right? And I'm against anything that makes it harder for any human to be a human. That's my policy. Does it make somebody's life harder? Then I'm not okay. Mm -hmm. If it makes somebody's life better or at least allows them to stay status quo, okay. But the moment you start to make somebody's life harder, I don't, I don't understand the point anymore. That's a big story, which I love that you told beginning to end here, because I, I, I love that you brought us up to that. You know, this is the second time I've gotten to hear that. What I love is, is you really sort of taking that step back and going, okay, I have these things I'm interested in. What is the common theme? What, it, what am I really working towards? And what am I passionate about? And what am I willing to sort of make time and space and room for in my life? And what does that mean? And so you, you know, you did that. You took, okay, I have this passion for animals, but why am I spending all my time over here helping youth if my passion is animals? What is it that I really want to be doing? And I think that there's a lesson there, not just for young people, but for anyone in their career who's going, okay, but I have this thing. I have this thing I want to do and I can't stop thinking about it and I can't stop rearranging things to be able to pursue it. Is that something I need to be giving my time and attention to maybe versus what's a little bit more traditional? or what historically I've been told I should be doing. Right. Which I'm sure you come up, you know, you probably see that within youth and being able to relate that to them too, of like, guys, this is where I was. This is what I was told as a teenager I needed four years. Had to do it. Because by the way, Christina, I was also told I needed four years. (laughs) I think millennial story. Oh, big time. Yeah, we were all told that. You're not going to get a job without a college degree. And now we luckily have this perspective in college debt to say that's probably not true. I'm thankful for it. It's like a yes and no, right? Like it's it wasn't wrong, but it wasn't right. Right. Yeah. No. And I, I know too. I I left out the piece about my business. Yes. Um, Tell me about that. Like I got distracted. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think a lot of times when we think about. You know, we also grew up in the age where it was very important to ask young people, what are you going to do with your life? Mm -hmm. Right. All the time. I don't know. (laughs) Still, (laughs) like, what is this going to keep looking like? I, You know, we just talked about this path I took and it was a windy, curvy, interesting one that I, I, a lot of times I stumbled into. My husband and I have joked, like, maybe the next time I choose something, I should do it with intention, right? <laughs> but like, it's a joke, but it's not. And, and I think a lot of us start falling into that, that like, until you really hone in on what makes sense to you. And I think my last career, like move was intentional, but like, that was a powerful thing to start to think about at a certain point. Like I was kind of just address like answering the call that life was throwing my direction for a lot of years. And it was fine. Right. Like I wasn't doing bad things. I wasn't making bad choices, but, but it's amazing that moment when you start to move in with intention. Yes. But that moment where you start to move with intention takes time to get to, and it's not something to rush either. Mm -hmm. And it's a big choice. 
Sometimes you have to you have to leave something else behind and that can be really difficult. Yeah. What you sometimes, you know, to make the right choice for you, you have to start to pare down what no longer aligns. Mm-hmm. So tell me about this story you have, kind of a turning point for yourself when you you received a letter in the mail from yourself from the past. Tell us about that story. I really like the way you framed that because it does make me seem a tad bit crazy and that's <laughs> fair. I'm very frequently the person who's like, I'm really frustrated with past Christine because she didn't put it in a spot where future Christine could find it. So I appreciate the little ounce of crazy that came out of that question. <laughs> yeah. So when I was in high school, I had a an English teacher who her thing was that we would write a letter to ourselves for five years from then and put a like put a stamp on it, mm-hmm. put an address you know you will still have access to in five years, and I'm going to mail them to you. And like, so I did. I absolutely mailed myself a letter and completely forgot about it because the way life hits you in, as an adult is one, unforeseen, two, from 17 to 23, it's a considerable amount of life you hit. Yes. Right. And so, which is always funny too, because like it just gets bigger, but somehow that still seems like the biggest hit you ever took. Mm-hmm. It's not, <laughs> but it feels like it. It does. And so here I was 23 years old in a terrible living situation, uh, just absolutely emotionally traumatizing living situation. I was broke. I was working at a nonprofit that didn't pay me adequately for my skills. I don't think they have the budget to, but at the same time, like realistically, I was severely underpaid. So I'm broke. I'm feeling lost in the world because I'm 23 and who isn't lost in the world at 23. And I get this letter and I open it up and the letter talks about how I had these great aspirations for myself by the ripe age of 20, because at 17, 20 is very far away. Oh, it's so mature too, right? So mature. (laughs) So mature. And so I had this laundry list of like 10 things that I was going to have accomplished by by the age of 20. Wow. Old 20-year-old Christine was going to have accomplished all these things. And I had only accomplished one. And I start like, I felt bad about that. I was like, one, I also know this is ridiculous. You thought I was going to finish this all while in college. Mm-hmm. You were dumb, Christine. <laughs> Past Christine was dumb. <laughs> and then follow up from that was like, okay, but also what about this one? And one of them stuck out to me. And it was, I was going to be a published author by the age of 20. And again, I just think it's funny that I genuinely labeled each of these with an age I was going to do it by, and I was going to be a published author by 20. And I had completely forgotten I wanted to publish books ever. Like that was gone, which was a really eye-opening moment for me. It was very pivotal. I think, um, and I've spoken on this a few different times. It's the reason for the name of my business now. I think that sometimes we have these incredible, incredible childhood dreams for ourselves and the world gets to us, right? Mm-hmm. You, you step out of your zone as a child and the world finds you and it comes at you from every direction. And while you're just trying to figure out how to navigate that, it starts to teach you how far those dreams are from reach. And they're not. And it, it, there's a very big challenge that we each face to 
challenge back against our own thoughts that we've developed to say, like, is it actually as far out of reach as the world has told me it is? Or can I actually do that? And so I I caught myself so off guard and I was in such a low place that I kind of had this moment of, all right, well, screw the world. The world's not doing anything for me, so I'm going to do it for myself. And I started, found some story that I had written and I started sending it to Wisconsin publishers because I, I was like, I want to work with a Wisconsin local publisher. I'm going to publish a book. I don't know. And so I just started submitting my book. And lo and behold, December of 2013, I had a publisher reach back out, two publishers reach back out and they wanted to publish my book. And one wanted me to pay $1,200, one wanted me to pay 600. And I already told you I was broke. Yeah. Um, and so I had this very clear moment where, and this is just who I am. I was at family Christmas, like with my whole extended family, like 40 of us. And I'm talking to my sister, my mom, my dad. And I think, I don't think my brother was standing there at the time, but I'm standing there with a bunch of my immediate family. And somebody asked me something and I was like, oh yeah, you know, not a lot of news going on. I mean, it's whatever, you know, I got offered the opportunity to publish a book. I'm doing X, Y, Z and like, just kind of kept going. <laughs> so just like peppered it in. And my sister stopped and she was like, did you say publish a book? And I was like, oh yeah, yeah. So I had a publisher reach out and they wanted to publish my children's book, um, but I, don't, I can't afford it. So I don't think I'm going to do it. And she was like, so that's dumb. <laughs> Leave it what to sisters. Yeah. <laughs> I love my sister between the two of us. I don't know which one of us like will call each other on, e on the bullshit yeah. faster. Yeah. Um, I think it just depends on the day and what's said. Right. Uh, so yeah, she was like, no, that's stupid. What do you need? I'll give you the money. And I was like, no, no, you're not giving me the money. And my mom's sitting there and she goes, okay, then I'll give you the money. How much is it? $600. I was like, so no, like, no, you're not giving me $600 to do this. And they were like, that's it. No, if, if you won't just do it, then we're paying for it and you're going to do it. Um, and I'm too proud. And so I scraped together the 600 and I made it happen. I didn't really realize at the time, but I signed on with a vanity press. Most people don't know about vanity presses. Um, vanity presses really function in the space of pay to publish. Give us your money. We'll publish your book. All right. Mm -hmm. So I published PB&J was my book. It's all about perseverance. Weirdly fitting at the time, right? Oh, big time. And so I paid to publish. I got in with the publisher and my first book was published in 2014. By 2016, I published a second one. It took that long to get there because of the funds and the money available. And then it was in that one that I hit some really big rocky spots with publishing. I had a couple lessons just handed to me in a hard way. You know, when you work with a vanity press, the only thing you don't do is your production of the book. So you schedule your events, you do your sales, you do your marketing. You do. Oh, okay. But if you have no industry expertise, <laughs> you're you just guessing. Scams accidentally. Oh, I'll bet. And I lost 30 books and easily, I think it came out to be about $270 of damage from the experience. At a time again where I was broke, I didn't have that to lose. And I almost quit. And I was like, that's it. That's the sign that I'm done. And my sister again stepped in and was like, you can't just fall. Like you can't just, you can't go out on that note. Like that's, that's too pathetic. <laughs> How about you try one more time? And if that one more time doesn't fall through, I'll support you stepping back and being done. But you have to try one more time. 
And so she's, and she's like, I'll help you figure out what that one more time is. And it was her insistence that I kept trying that I was like, okay, fine. One more time. And that next time failed. It was panned out to nothing. But if someone else can keep, can see what I'm doing better than I can, then maybe I need to keep doing it. Right. And so her insistence yet again, is the only reason why I still publish children's books today. And then my my now husband lit the fi- next fire that was like, I'm doing all the work. I don't have this transparency. I'm just paying you to publish my stuff. What if I can do it myself? What if I can produce the book? Like other people do it, right? They make self-published books. So like, what if I don't need you? Then what can I do? And that's how Dream Build started was a wild hair of like, well, maybe I don't need anybody to make this happen for me. And I can publish more books faster with less financial need on my own than I can with somebody else. And so in 2017, I opened Dream Built Books. My tagline from day one has been written, written with, or built on dreams, written with purpose, with the commitment that every book that is produced will have meaningful purpose for young people. And, and again, from that basis of childhood dreams are not that far out of reach. And so now I have nine books at this point, and I'm working with an author to bring on to the team. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, and it's such a climb of a story, right? You know, <laughs> go, going from this letter and starting to sort of feel bad because you didn't accomplish all of your life goals by the age of 20. And <laughs> but then saying, OK, there's one in here I can do. I can do this. But then having to learn all of these things in, in in a hard way. I mean, really going through that entire process, but it brought you to this place where you have such clarity about what you want to do and who you want to do it for and with. And, uh, you know, I think that is a story that a lot of entrepreneurs can very much identify with of saying I had to learn these things. And obviously it would have been nice to learn them in a less costly way, a less emotional way, <laughs> but I did it. And, and here we are. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs, whether it's the same like $270 was breaking the bank or not, like I think anyone who ventures into their own business, there is a lot of emotion tied to every hit you take, whether there's a financial or not implications, right? Like it's just, you build it, right? I built it. It's a version of a baby. <laughs> That's right. And you also had this support system for you. That was your family. For others, it could be other business owners. It could be friends, but people who continue to encourage you and say, you you can do this. You have what it takes. Try it. Just try it. Well, and somebody willing, I, I think one of the best things any of us can ever do, whether it's just, you know, in our regular professional life, in our personal life, in our entrepreneurial life, right? Like any of them is have the right people at the table who are going to cheer you on along the way. My husband is the best cheerleader for my business. Same with my dad. I like Jeff, but he's my marketing agent. My husband is like on par with that though. But then also those people who one can pick you up when you fall or two challenge you when you're doing some, like when you're, when you're letting the fall win, right? You got to have all the right people at the table to, to really push you forward. Mm-hmm. And it's not just people who believe in you blindly. I think it's people who've seen you work, people who know your skills, who are going to say, like, I I get that there's hard things. I get that there's stuff you either don't want to do or maybe you're not that great at. But then let's figure it out because I know you can do it. I know you can get there. Yep. Oh, my husband. 
to the days that I like on the days that I don't want to hear it. He is always going to challenge and like, not always what I want to hear. <laughs> it's true. But like, usually, again, and it comes from a place of he wants me to be my best. And so whether I want to hear it or not, it's worth at least acknowledging and listening to and and there's a lot of value in that person who's going to, who's not afraid to push back. Yep. Who kind of shows that real true mirror, you know, and, and allows you to see it that way. So speaking of your husband, so he got the opportunity to move back to Green Bay and I'm sure you were excited about the job opportunity. It sounds like it was a great fit for him, but did you have a moment of like, oh no, I said I was not going back. <laughs> did you have to like get over no, that? No, actually by that point in time, we wanted to come back. Okay. And my husband's from the Twin Cities, so he wanted to come to Green Bay, and I, I was ready to come back. Okay. So what was that switch for you that you felt like, all right, it's all right now? Green Bay wasn't the same place I left. And so like in the times that we had come back to visit, it was a very different community. And when we needed to evaluate, you know, down the, at the time, we were like, at some point, we're going to want kids, right? And so where do we want to be when we need to be planted where we are? And the answer ended up being Green Bay. Very cool. So when you say it wasn't the same place that when I left, what do you mean? Like, what was different for you? What's the same? Um, (laughs) So when I say that, I think of very specifically, when I left, I was 17. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I guess I was 18. I graduated when I was 17. But like, either way, right? 17, 18, in those handful of months around, the only thing that really makes the difference is law. So I was the same human. Um, but when I left, I never went, I never came downtown and I wouldn't, I wasn't really encouraged to, cause like, why, what good was there 15 years ago for a 17 year old girl to come to downtown Green Bay? What positive thing do you need to be doing down there? You don't, right? Right. There wasn't anything to do for younger people. There wasn't any real events I needed to go to. I didn't know the East Side. Like the East Side was just the East Side. It wasn't until six years ago now when my brother bought a house in Alloway. And when he bought it, I was like, oh, so you left Green Bay. (laughs) And he goes, Christine, Alloway's in Green Bay. (laughs) Where? Like, uh -uh. (laughs) uh-uh. I was like, I was shook. Shook. What? There is a part of Green Bay named Alloway. <laughs> Where is it? I now live in Alloway, so I extra find that funny. But like, I didn't, I didn't spend time on the east side because why? What, what was on the east side that I needed at all? And so I think when we look at what our community has done in the last 15 years, we have created a lot of sense of belonging for anyone across the community, right? So... You look at Bay Beach and the way Bay Beach has maintained its ticket prices while still bringing in fun things to do, right? You look at the wildlife sanctuary and the way that they've continued to expand UWGB and the way that they bring community out to the campus. I look at Alloway itself, right? There are some beautiful parks. There are some beautiful spaces that you can go to, Baird Creek, and we've invested in these spaces. And those are spaces like outside of Bay Beach. I didn't really go to, I didn't really know about like what's at Green Isle Park. It's just a park. It's a really nice park. I didn't know that Bear Creek was a thing. And I look at like Ashwaubenon. Why did I ever go to Ashwaubenon? 
Bay Park Mall. That's it. Like I knew how to get to the mall and I got home, mall and home. Now there is just, there are unlimited numbers of reasons why you might end up in Ashwaubenon. And, and so creating reasons to be here and to invest your time in our community, right, rather than just transactionally being here, has changed the landscape of what it means to be part of Green Bay. And I think that's a huge, huge growth in mindset that we've changed to is it's not just the transaction of what is this going to do for Green Bay, but what does this actually do for the people of Green Bay? And that all really comes into play when you start talking about talent retention and creating this space of belonging. And I'm sure it affects what you do each day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love my my role really is talent retention on behalf of the community. Mm-hmm. And so the more we create opportunities for people to be together, to be in the community, experiencing each other in a positive way, the better, right? And the more we diversify that, the more welcoming and inclusive it is. And So there's, you know, I don't remember the exact stats, but there is a lot of evidence lately that has shown that most of our younger generations will actually pick a place to live first and then find the job next because community and place of belonging weighs so much higher on the scale of importance than who your employer is first. Which has got to be a huge shift for employers. I think a lot of times, yeah, it's like, we're here, you'll come here. And that's yeah, not and like the case. you're no longer the most important choice in your employees' world anymore. Right. There was a long time where employers were the choice, like were the priority choice, right? And they're not anymore. And there's a lot of things that have played into that. And the employers who have started to recognize that, they're winning. The people who are losing have not recognized that you're not my top priority. And again, there's a lot of things that have played into that. Well, and I think it's it's a shift for employers too to really see their employee as a whole person, you know, instead of instead of just this person that's here eight to five and then I don't have to worry about anything else. And and you do. You have to start to think of them and their worries and their fears and what they're dealing with because it's going to affect what they're doing in the workplace. And I know, Absolutely. yeah, and one, one of those big things is, in fact, childcare. You and I talked about it right before we started recording of we've got little kids and and this is my heart, right? That's walking around on the street. And I need a place for them to go if I'm going to be a worthwhile employee. Not only a place to go, a quality place to go where I trust that they are being taken care of and loved to the degree that I expect. And you said it's a sinking ship, but it's not. It's, not, it's gone. <laughs> no, it's not sinking. I told you it's sunk. Oh, yeah, it's sunk. It's a sunken ship. I called it the Titanic. <laughs> That's our childcare system, right? Yeah. <laughs> yep. It's the sunken Titanic and it's tragic. It is. It is. And I think that so often employers are like, well, that's that's your problem. That's not my problem. But it's beginning to take people out of the workforce. It's beginning to take talent out of our employers. So it, it is, in fact, an employer problem. Absolutely. So, I th- so, yeah, I mean, you've said a couple different things that I think deserve some deeper thought. Sure. Yeah. I think it's easy to look at different generations and say, I, I did that. How come you can't? Mm-hmm. Right. But when we look at our generations, we've all had different generational experiences. Yes. And so the workforce has changed for a lot of reasons. 
I always speak to what I know, which is the millennial generation, but we've also been a very um, pivotal generation in the work landscape, right? So most people don't realize that the millennial generation is actually the smallest generation above and below ourselves. And like two generations above, two generations below, we're the smallest by 10 million people. Wow. Um, Our workforce crisis is 10 million people. So I wonder what's happening. The millennial generation is our largest component of the workforce as well right now. So that 10 million shortage and that 10 million shortage seems to align in my mind. But the millennial generation, you know, when we were graduating from high school, graduating from college, right? My husband graduated at the peak of a recession. I entered college at the peak of a recession. And that impacted us, right? And so at a certain point, we, you know, we were told to go get these college degrees. We took on student debt. And then we didn't necessarily have the jobs available that would have commanded the degree that we needed or told we were told we needed, right? Right. And so you took the job you could get, right? And you set your career back a little bit because you didn't necessarily take the job that aligned with your your qualifications. You took the job that made sense in the moment. Mm -hmm. So we set ourselves back a little bit. And then in that, you know, you start to try to grow your career, but we had a very large generation above us, you know, a couple spots. And the, the boomer generation is a very large generation why they're the boomers, right? And so they were holding a lot of positions. Gen Xers weren't really moving up. So we weren't moving up. And so you found us stagnated in a lot of these lower positions, just trying to make our way through, but still having this college debt to pay. And so that limits what what a young professional is able to do from a savings standpoint when you're buried in debt, but also not really commanding an income to cover that debt. And when your income is less than your student debt, there's a problem. Right. Yep. And that's how I spent eight of my professional career years with a higher amount of student debt than the income I was getting. This is why I was broke. Right. And fast forward and we start kind of pulling ourselves out of this, this hole we're in, uncovering the rock and being like, okay, okay. So finally I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. And then the largest portion of the millennial generation started hitting their thirties during COVID. Yep. So winning generation again, right? Like hitting in you right when it hurts. Mm-hmm. A lot of people took job hits across the generations, right? Like that's not millennial only, but here we have a generation that again, takes another hit. Then you hit, you know, what do you do in your thirties? Buy, Buy a house. house. And so now the housing market shifts and homes that were being sold to other people five years prior for 160,000 are now $350,000 homes. So that home you had the that you were working towards is now double the cost, <laughs> double the mortgage, and I still have my student debt, and I'm still trying to grow my career to a point where I can even you know command that right. Mm-hmm. So we're paying higher mortgages. We're still you know trying to climb into the right positions. Some of us you know took hits on our careers during COVID, and then you get to childcare, and what do you do in your thirties? have kids to fill that house. (laughs) And COVID hit childcare terribly. A lot of things have hit childcare terribly. It is a broken system. And there's a lot of people who understand that and realize that it's, it is most of the fees that you pay as a parent cover most of the cost of the entire operation. They have like a 1% margin. Like they don't make money on it. They are more likely to lose money and, and fail. And so 
And, and most people don't realize that the average paid childcare worker who likely has a college degree is being paid 11 to $13 an hour. That's the standard. Would And you are giving them your one to five, like zero to five, birth to five child to care for. And they are doing it with a deep amount of passion, a deep amount of skill. And a lot of them are being paid $12 an hour. And for those of you who don't know, I mean, double that, and that's roughly the annual salary, right? So we're roughly around $24,000 annually. That's not enough to live on. So a lot of childcare workers end up on food stamps, housing stuff, pick the thing. So, you know, a lot of it's broken. And yet still, the employees you have in your, your business are paying easily $300 a week to get their kid into quality care. So... That's fourteen hundred a month. I mean, mine wraps up to fourteen hundred a month. I don't. There are people. I don't pay the most. I I don't pay the least. But fourteen hundred a month to have my daughter in quality childcare. That is more than some people's mortgage. Right. So if I'm paying fourteen hundred a month for one, how do I afford two? And so that's the real dilemma that we start facing, right? Like one is manageable usually. But you got to get to the, you might want two, right? God forbid you want three. And now you're talking 30000 a year that I'm dropping on childcare just so that I can come to work. And when our employees have to start answering that question for themselves of does, what is the cost benefit here? Is it, is my salary high enough that it still makes sense for me to work? Now you start playing the game of talent retention. Right. Right. So the millennial generation is the smallest generation. Right. Back to that first point. In order to replace ourselves, we need to have 2.1 children per family in the millennial generation. Right. So Mm -hmm. that means we need families having three. Our birth rate for the millennial generation is 1.7. So we are not replacing ourselves. No. Because we can't afford it. Because we can't afford it. (laughs) I do not have savings. (laughs) That's paying student debt still. Right. And childcare. Um, But so if we're not replacing ourselves and in order to replace ourselves, we may need to step out of the workforce. Now what we're talking about is families making the decision based on childcare pricing. We have two options. Either one of us stays home and we continue to damage the current workforce crisis. So everyone who's struggling to employ positions is going to have less people that they can employ, less options on the table. Or we keep working and we have less children, which then means, and what a lot of people aren't piecing together, is if the smallest generation is not having enough kids to replace themselves 20 years from now, the workforce crisis we are dealing with today is going to be so much worse. Not to mention, if you are putting your kids in childcare and you're finding affordable childcare, is it quality? And that quality matters because everything that happens birth to five impacts a young person for the foundationally for the remainder of their education, right? So you and I talked about it briefly, but like you consider ACEs. ACEs is adverse childhood experiences that they focus on the first 18 months. If anything super negative, they have like 10 main factors that they follow. And if you have one or more it already it starts to dramatically change the outcome of your future. And there are proven stats on it, right? You and I talked about how there are ones of like abuse and neglect that if those happen in the first 18 month months, it actually changes the way your brain forms for the duration of your life. 
And so we're talking about long-term damage that can be done in these scenarios, right? Birth to five is essential. And so putting your child into a safe, educational, and happy environment in the right kind of childcare, licensed, checks and balances, teachers with education, that's setting your future workforce up for the most success you possibly can. Mm -hmm. And the more we keep referring to the kids going into childcare as our future workforce, the more we might be able to get employers to start to realize that this is not just a family issue. We are developing your future workforce. So if you want employees with literacy, if you want employees who can handle communication, who can handle challenges, who have the socio-emotional capabilities, investing in them is essential. <laughs> and investing in them doesn't start at 18 years old. Right. They're developed. Mm -hmm. They only have seven years left to develop their brain at that point. But the foundational development is there. Right. Well, I think that's, it's fascinating to talk to people who have that sort of understanding. And especially when it comes to like, like you mentioned, childhood trauma. And, you know, I think there's sometimes an attitude from, I shouldn't categorize it as older generations, but maybe even just an older workforce of like, pick yourself up, you're going to be fine. You know, put, put that behind you. When in fact, your brain has now been physically changed. That is not something you can just undo. No, no. And it changed. So one of my favorite ways that I ever spoke to like my staff team when I ran a skate park regarding this was so again, when you like, so if you were abused, I don't remember the specifics in this moment, but a portion, the portion of your brain, the emotional portion, sorry, neglect reduces the size of the emotional center of your brain. Okay. Which makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. You were neglected that didn't grow as strong. So your emotional center will be smaller. If you are abused, the like, like your brainstem, which is your fight or flight, your very innate reaction to things will grow larger because you've practiced fight or flight more, right? Your body has been put in scenarios where it had to fight to survive more. So somebody who was abused and neglected has a larger brainstem, smaller emotional center, right? So now when you have a kid coming from that background and you're working with them and they're 14 years old and you get mad at them and their reaction is to yell and scream and run away. It's not because they don't want, it's not necessarily because they don't want to have a better reaction, but the best, the, their, their fight or flight response is so strong, right? Their brain is developed differently. And so being cognizant that background and that foundation impacts the way we behave mm -hmm. is essential. And honestly, we study on a general standpoint, like we don't actually talk about how brains function enough for as much as we try to like, especially in the workplace, understand and evaluate how people are functioning, right? We try to answer to people's behaviors. We don't even understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so like that, that brain change is so impactful. And it starts early. And we have That's to, really. and we have to be conscious of it. And we have to, I think there's, there's, there is a huge argument for understanding, not just what your employees are going through to care for their children, but understanding that, yes, these are the people that are going to take over for them. So mm -hmm. if we have this 20, 30 year plan for our business, where does the workforce fit into that? And what are we doing? 
And why didn't we, right. And why didn't we fix the sinking ship when it was actually sinking and it sunk? Which is a whole other conversation, Kristen. Now we just need a whole new ship. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's right. We need to build a whole new ship. That's right. (laughs) Absolutely. All right, Christine. Well, here is where you and I are going to get a little inspirational for our listeners. As you may or may not know, Horicon Bank is the natural choice for banking. That's not just a tagline. It's something that we take really seriously. We have um, environmental causes we support. We try to be very environmentally friendly. So in that spirit... I'm going to give you an interesting animal fact, and I'm going to ask you to turn it into a piece of inspirational advice for our business owners. You ready? Yeah. Okay. No two zebras have the exact same stripes. Did you know that? No. Actually, yes, I think I did, actually. But that, like, perfectly aligns, right? Mm -hmm. So we all have a tremendous ability to improve the way our world looks if we stop trying to create systems that work for the same exact looking zebra. No two zebras are alike. No two people are exactly alike. And when we create systems that require us to be, we continue to lose. Our our opportunity here is to acknowledge and create systems that support every unique zebra to be their best zebra they can possibly be. That was beautiful. Thank you. (laughs) I'm so glad I got that back because that fit perfectly. It really did fit perfectly. That's excellent. You're, you know, yeah. I mean, even I even think about, I took on a role as a manager about a year and a half, two years ago, and just starting to see your employees as individuals and their individual strengths. And even as a team member, like, sure, I understood that, but now I'm in a, in a spot to, you're right, construct systems or processes or things that help them where they're at versus where I think they should fit or yeah. where somebody else used to fit. No two zebras. No two zebras. <laughs> Well, and I even, I mean, wrapping it all in with talent retention, right? If you can look at your benefits and how can you allow people to to address who they are and what they need out of their benefits, that's one of the most innovative things you could start to look at in terms of how you're going to retain people and how you're going to create that benefit for them, right? Get creative, allow people to tell you what they need instead of just deciding you know what that is. How do you tell an employer, like give an employer that advice or what would you, what do you think an employer could do to find out what those true needs are? I mean, so the first answer is you have to actually care to know, right? You can't just ask. And if you've built a culture of distrust, you're not going to get honesty. Mm -hmm. You got, but you got to ask, ask your people. They know the answer. Pick any person you work with or any person you know What is something that would help you stay, right? Yeah. They've started talking about stay interviews. Mm -hmm. What would be the difference? You know, my supervisor asked me that that at one point. What would would keep you here when your daughter arrives? Well, I need to be able to go home at night. Mm -hmm. I need to be able to be home. They made it happen. They gave me the flexibility I needed to be able to be my best self when I came to work and go home and be my best self for my daughter. And I, and they've done that in several unique ways. And, and that, that keeps me here because at the end of the day, I'm going to pick my daughter over your business every day of the week. This is not even a remote competition. (laughs) Talk to any mom, talk to any dad. 
I mean, pick the person, right? Mm-hmm. I, I say it from the mom perspective, but I know my husband's the same way. Get between him and her. No competition. He'll pick her. So it goes back to that thing I said at the beginning, you know, if you still think you're my top priority, you missed it. And so how do you talk to me, understand my needs, genuinely care? And then when I tell you it, follow through. Can't just be talk. That's right. So before we end the show, Christine, I want to wrap up with some actionable advice, which I think you just gave, (laughs) actually. But is there anything else that you would want business owners to know when it comes to talent retention, or maybe even when it comes to like their own entrepreneurial journey, what is that advice you'd want them to walk away with today? Mm, Okay. So entrepreneurial journey, Mm -hmm. chase it, fight for it. Sorry, let me say it again, because I got a tickle in my throat right as I did. For the entrepreneurial advice, I would say chase it if you want it. If you don't want it that badly, don't chase it. It's a lot of work. But if you do chase it, work for it and don't let the world kick you down, like make it happen. Mm-hmm. When it comes to employers, what I would say is the only way to win is invest in your people. Investing in your people means knowing who they are and their needs, making sure that they are committed to their community and that you are supporting them on that. Again, you said it, if you are not willing to invest in the whole person, you're going to lose because we don't have room for that anymore whole person or no person. And so if you want a vacant spot, don't invest in the whole person. If you want somebody to stay, invest in the whole person and be innovative, be innovative in your approaches, the status quo, the way you always did it. It we're not in that world anymore. That world's gone. And so if you want to live in that world while the rest of us keep moving, that's a choice. It's also a choice to get innovative and to try new things. And then the last thing would be, it's easy to look at things like childcare and say that that's a family problem. It's a it's an individual problem. It's a mom problem, right? Yep. But the moment you start tuning in to the workforce crisis and how that Im- actually dramatically impacts your economic prosperity, your future workforce, your current workforce, get involved in that conversation and start opening your ears to how that impacts you because not addressing it is not an option anymore. That was That's awesome. That's all I got. That's all I got. <laughs> that was probably four pieces of actionable advice. So I'd say you're good, Christine. I think okay. you gave us enough. Probably more than anybody wanted. <laughs> well, I have enjoyed our conversation today. You've given me a lot to think about. And I think entrepreneurs who hear your story, business owners who hear this advice, I think it's excellent. And I just really appreciate your time. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk about it. I mean, you know, I'll talk forever about all of these things. But so I appreciate you giving the space for me to do that and to share my nuggets of wisdom. I don't think it's wisdom. It's just my perspective. But thank you because I think there's some, some merit to it. And I hope that somebody took something away. Absolutely. Thanks for tuning in. To stay in the loop on all things banking on business related, visit horaconbank.com slash banking on business and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.